excited about that. Mark chapter 1, let's stand for the reading of God's word. just read one verse to get us started, and then we'll use our Bibles quite a bit this morning. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, let's read this in unison. The Word of God says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your biblical record of who you are. Our Father, we're thankful that you sent your Son and that he was willing to come and that he showed us who you were and who you are. And still today, the saving power of Christ is abundant and available. We pray today that you'd give us a lot of insight, wisdom, and Lord, help us to be confident and have the Bible answers to the most important questions in the world regarding the the Son of God. And so we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and put these words down deeply into our hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. And you may be seated. What a simple but powerful verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel means good news. It speaks of the path to heaven, the good news about how salvation was purchased, but also speaks of the, the story of Christ. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why, why did he come? And in our Sound Doctrine series, <clears throat> I wanted to take some time this morning and talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You could ask the question, who is Jesus Christ? And this morning we're going to talk about the person, who he is, and the work, what he did, of Jesus Christ. The Gospels contain the history of Jesus Christ. And I I want to remind that it's, it's history. This is not a story. This is not equivalent to Uh, other fables from uh, uh, other religions. These are historical accounts from eyewitnesses that have been procured and protected by God through the ages. These are historical facts. There really was a man named Jesus. He really did everything the Bible says he did. And that's under attack today because since people who don't believe in Jesus, they can't they can't really stop his power. They can't really stop the, the work of Christ. All they can do is try to get people to not believe in him. As the Bible says plainly about Christ in one place, he did not many works, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The only way to stop the work of God is to get people to stop believing in God and his work. <clears throat> and so We must understand who Jesus is, and we must have a ready answer. The question, who is Jesus Christ? Some today say a prophet. Others say a teacher. A few say that he was a con man. 
Many believe that he is the Savior of the world. What you believe about Jesus Christ will determine your present blessings and your future destiny. Think about that. Yeah, when you and I die, it's not going to matter where we lived, how much money we had in the bank, how much money we gave to good causes. It's not going to matter what church we attended or what label, religious label, we placed on ourselves. The only thing that's going to matter is what did we believe about Jesus Christ? I often remind people this isn't how it works. But if when you die, if God were to meet you and say, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? And the only answer that works is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross to pay for my sin, was buried and rose again, and I trusted him as my Savior. Some form of that. But ultimately, the only thing that matters when we die is is what did we believe about Jesus that's going to determine our eternal destiny and our present and even future blessings. Because if you do believe in Jesus, as many of you here proclaim, then it matters how you live after that. You know, following Jesus in this life is the only way to secure uh, eternal blessings in the next, eternal rewards. Uh, going to heaven is, is a blessing, but the Bible says there's a reward system for those who follow him here. And so uh, we're all going to, every believer will be at a place called the judgment seat of Christ. And what we did and who we were is going to be compared to what God had planned for us and who we could have been. And we're going to be rewarded for the, the amount that we followed Christ and we're going to suffer loss for the amount we didn't. Simply meaning we're going to realize and recognize all that we could have been and done. And in that moment realize that we lost all that opportunity and heavenly reward. <clears throat> There's going to come a day in heaven where the Bible says God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. Think about that. Why is God going to have to wipe away the tears from our eyes in heaven? Because we are going to have some awareness of what we lost, of the people we didn't witness to, of the opportunities we had. And then thankfully, God's going to take a moment in time and say, we're not going to worry about that anymore. He's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes and we're going to live in everlasting bliss in heaven. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to answer them. But who is Jesus Christ? And what you believe about Jesus is the only thing that matters when it comes to your eternal destiny. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, the Bible says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? So you read the story here. Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And the disciples gave answers of things they had heard. But then he said, who do you say that I am? And that's the real question. Who do you say that I am? And the Holy Spirit today can ask each one of you in your heart, who do you think Jesus is? Is he a prophet, a good man, reincarnation of Elijah, Jeremiah? But through the inspiration of God, Simon Peter gave the right answer in verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, 
the son of the living God? And that's the right answer. Christ asked the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders of the day, if anybody should have been able to recognize the Messiah when he showed up, it should have been the Pharisees. And yet, the Bible says in Matthew 22, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And the answer is, Christ is standing right before you. And they give some religious answers and... Jesus challenges them in verse 46, says, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. The Messiah was asking them, Who do you think the Messiah is? And they didn't have the right answer. But they also knew better than to ask him any more questions because they were coming to the conclusion that they didn't have the answers. The sad part of that fact is that if they had just trusted in him, everything would have been okay. But instead of accepting the Messiah, they decided to try to remove him to preserve their own power and, and place in society. The Bible teaches that every Christian should be ready to give a Bible answer to the question, who is Jesus? If someone came to you today or someone at work tomorrow and said, who is Jesus? Why do you go to church? Why do you, why do you talk about Jesus? What, what answer would you give them to explain who Jesus is? And every Christian should have a prepared answer for who Jesus is and why we believe in him. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but sanctifiers set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So if you're not a Christian, you need to find out who Jesus is because your eternal destiny is going to ride upon him. And if you are a Christian, you need to know who Jesus is and know how to explain who he is to others because we need to explain to others the hope that is in us. <clears throat> and I, I contend this morning that Jesus Christ is the most important figure in human history. By every estimation, Jesus Christ is the most important person who ever lived. It's a pretty bold statement. But it's one that is without controversy for those who are willing to take an honest look at the truth. Over 2 billion people claimed Jesus Christ as their Lord 2,000 years after he walked the earth. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. He wrote no books personally. He had no promotional agent to increase his profile. He sought no earthly throne or praise of men. <clears throat> Yet he changed the world. Literally change the world. Every time you write the date, you acknowledge the birth of Jesus Christ. Why? They literally rewrote the calendar when Jesus showed up. B.C., before Christ, A.D., after our Lord. 
Jesus' appearance on the scene of history became the defining moment in which we measure our days. Every atheist that writes August 6, 2023 is acknowledging that Jesus Christ changed the world. Some of them know that, and that's why they've tried over the years to change the numbering system and, and how we calculate the dates and even B.C. and A.D., trying to erase and, and separate it from Jesus. But they fail. The question remains, who is Jesus? What did he do that was so amazing? How did he change the world? Why did he come? And this morning I want to <clears throat> give you five statements that explain the person and work of Jesus Christ. Five simple statements, Jesus Christ is this. And I think if you retain these, study them, learn them, you'll be able to give anybody in the world an honest answer of who Jesus is and why he matters. Well, this morning we talk about the person and work of Christ. And we're going to use our Bibles quite a bit here from this moment on. Number one. Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. Look at Mark chapter 1, the, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then it identifies who Christ is, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now the virgin birth tells us how he could be the Son of God. Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. Another way to say it is the God-man. He was everything that a human is, but also uh, the, the, everything that God is melded together so that he could come and die in our place. Uh, he is the Son of God. And the virgin birth just talks about the, the, the process by which a man could be god and it's through the virgin birth. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So this virgin-born son was literally going to be God with us. He was the virgin-born son of God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. <clears throat> so this child that was born is going to be called the Mighty God. He's the God child, the God man. <clears throat> He's also called the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Look at Luke chapter 1. We're talking about Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> An angel came and announced to Mary how God was going to use her. She was a godly woman who had saved herself. By the way, our world's so sexualized today, I still think young, young people should save themselves for marriage. I want you to look up here. I'm not some old fuddy-duddy that's, that's lost back in the 1950s and does, doesn't know what year it is. I'm telling you that immorality 
immorality, lasciviousness, sex outside of the bounds of marriage is one of the most corruptive things that, a, that can happen in a society and it lends itself and becomes every other type of sexual deviance that exists today. It all goes back and has its source in the fact that God intended for intimacy, physical intimacy, to occur within the bounds of marriage. I'm telling you, young people, mark it down. It will complicate your life beyond your imagination. And we as adults have to be honest with children and say, hey, this is what the Bible says, and God's right. Everything, everything in this world, songs, I mean the songs today describing sexuality and sexual acts and all these things, if some of you knew what your kids listened to, it, it would shock you. And you better figure it out. Uh, It should shock some of us what some of us are listening to. TV shows, movies, all of this kind of stuff, it's everywhere. And it's corrupting society. By the way, not just kids, us too. If you're married, stay away from the nasty stuff. Don't go to the nasty websites. Don't, don't, uh, I tell, often tell men, stop going window shopping. You got a wife? Love her and keep yourself unto her. You've got a husband, love him and keep yourself unto him. And so we've, we've got to understand this matters. And a lot of people today don't even understand why the virgin birth is important because society is so corrupted on this matter. But it was important. Mary saved herself. She was waiting for her husband. She was actually betrothed. She was in, we would say she was engaged but God came to her and look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Uh, so this miracle took place where uh, this baby was supernaturally placed in the womb of Mary, and he was the God-man. He was, he was conceived differently than anybody that's ever been born because he is different than anybody that's ever been born. He wasn't tainted by sin. My kids have my wife's sin nature. <laughs> my kids have my sin nature too. Because Jesus was conceived supernaturally, he did not have any sin nature. He was the sinless, virgin-born Son of God. Isn't that a blessing? Look at John chapter 1. <clears throat> John chapter 1, great verses to memorize. In the beginning was the Word. Now this is speaking of a person. This is a title. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whoever this Word was, is talking about that he was God. Verse 8, uh, he was not that light, speaking of John the Baptist, was to sent to bear, but was sent to bear witness of that light. 
Verse 9, this was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. When you read through this, you find out that the word is talking about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. And the word was made flesh, virgin birth, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These eyewitnesses said, when we looked at Jesus, we saw the glory of God, because he is the sinless Son of God. Look at verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Jesus is that everlasting word, and he is God. And then the Bible says in verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. Uh, Speaking of the Father, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So That's an important verse when we go into this second idea. We said, number one, Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. He's sinless. Number two, Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal God and redeem sinful men. That's what we just read. No man's seen God. Nobody's seen God the Father. All the Old Testament appearances of God were actually Christophanies. They were Old Testament appearances of Jesus Christ. But we find that Jesus came to reveal the Father. Look at John chapter 17. Jesus Christ came to the earth to reveal God and redeem sinful men. John 17. And verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. See, the only way you can get to the Father is through the Son. And the Son came to reveal or to manifest the Father. We find the same thing in in John chapter 14 when the disciples asked, Lord, show us the Father. And he's like, you've been, you've been looking at me. Don't you, don't you understand? I am showing you the Father. Jesus came to earth to reveal God and to redeem sinful men. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> We're moving quickly because I want to make these statements and just give you some supporting evidence. But the statements, if you can get these statements down, you're going to always have an answer of who Jesus is, the person and work of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses or sins unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, So we're supposed to go out and tell other people that God was in Christ and that God won't impute your sins to you if you trust Christ. Verse 20, Now then we are the ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him, 
to be sin for us. For God hath made Jesus Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is salvation. Jesus Christ came to the earth to reveal God and to redeem sinful men. Look at Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Jesus Christ had to be born as a perfect man so he could die as a man for the sins of others. If I were to die, I would be dying for my own sins. If you were to die, you would be dying for your sins. Jesus had no sin because he was the virgin-born, sinless Son of God, but he was fully human so he could die on the cross and our sins could be placed on his account. He died for us to redeem us, and then when we accept him, his righteousness is placed upon us. When God looks at a Christian, he doesn't see a sinner, he sees his son. What a beautiful thing. So we learn, number one, Jesus Christ is the virgin-born, sinless son of God. Number two, Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal God and to redeem sinful men. Number three, Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. The, the word you might see in old literature is vicarious. Vicarious just means substitutionary. That means Jesus died in our place. So Jesus accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. He died for me. He died for you. You're here in Galatians. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So he died for us, he shed our blood. So that we, he shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. Look at the book of Hebrews. Keep going towards the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus Christ is our substitutionary sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, watch this, that he by the grace of God should taste death for who? Every Every man. Jesus died for the world. He died for every individual, for every man. When Jesus died on the cross... 
he was dying in my place. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dying in your place. We deserved the punishment. Jesus didn't. He said, I want to be that sacrifice. I will die for you. Somebody had to pay for sin. Somebody had to suffer. Somebody had to die. Jesus said, I'm going to suffer in your place so you can go free. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus Christ is our substitutionary sacrifice. He accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. Number four, Jesus Christ ensured our justification with his literal physical resurrection from the dead. Literal physical resurrection from the dead. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again, we're born again, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Do you see that? Jesus died on the cross in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. His resurrection is what ensures that we can go to heaven when we die. Jesus Christ conquered death and hell, and He's going to make sure not only did He die for us, but our souls will never die because He showed His authority over death in the resurrection. He ensured our justification with His literal, physical resurrection from the dead. Now, we talk about this a few times a year, especially on Easter. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 18 say, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then there is no salvation. There is no salvation. This isn't a, this isn't a, a negotiable part of the gospel. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, defines the gospel as Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and He rose again, according to the Scriptures. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the gospel. And without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 18 says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Listen, if there's no resurrection, not only are you not saved and going to heaven, but everybody else who ever died as a Christian isn't saved and they're not in heaven. This is how important the resurrection is. So uh, don't, don't, don't allow anybody to try to, to shake your faith in the resurrection. Then some people say, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. He kind of swooned and the coolness of the grave, the coolness of the the, the cave in which he was buried uh, just kind of woke him up and, and then he came back 
you know, he, he went and got some medical attention. And when someone tells that, I say, okay, let's do an experiment. I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life. You know, when their eyes get real big. It's like, well, you be Jesus. I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life. I'm going to punch you. I'm going to break you. I'm going to pull your beard out. I'm going to strip. I'm going to, I'm going to strap you to a post and beat you with a whip until we can see your ribs. And then I'm going to take you and nail you to a cross with railroad spikes between your hands and your feet. I'm going to let you hang there for six hours. And then when it's all said and done, I'm going to take a spear and poke it right into your heart. By that time, their eyes were like this big. You think you'd survive that? No. Then stop with the whole Jesus swoon business. He didn't swoon. He suffered more than any man's ever suffered. And he died. And God supernaturally rose him from the grave. This is who Jesus is. Let me give you the last one. Number five. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. And sits exalted at the right hand of God. Whereas our high priest, he fulfills the ministry of intercession. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, sits exalted at the right hand of God, whereas our high priest, he alone fulfills the ministry of intercession. Acts chapter 1 verse 9, go ahead and look there, Acts chapter 1. So Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he hung around for about 40 days. He went to church services. He went to meetings. He met with people. <clears throat> the Bible says at one point, 500 people saw him at one time. By the way, don't forget when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that graves opened and there was a mass resurrection of the dead in the cemetery around where Jesus died. <laughs> so... No wonder with everything he had seen, the centurion standing at the foot of the cross is truly this was the Son of God. I mean, there was no doubt. If you were paying attention, there was no doubt what happened that day. And as life surrendered to death, just as a proof of who he was, mass resurrection. <laughs> you know, and as far as we know, those people lived out the rest of their natural life. Jesus Christ himself raises from the dead. He meets with the apostles, the, the disciples of that afternoon. That morning he talks to, to Mary. He meets with a couple of disciples that afternoon. He goes to church that night and meets with people. Thomas isn't there. Next Sunday night he shows up to church. Thomas, stick your hands and uh, stick your fingers in my holes and in my side. And then he goes on this 40-day tour of meeting with different Christians, showing himself to people. 500 people saw him at one time. After this, it's time for Jesus to go back to heaven. So how does Jesus get back to heaven? He doesn't die. He's already conquered death. So this is what's called the ascension. If you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went. So understand, they're talking to Jesus. Jesus is done. He gives them a final commission. See you later, boys. And he just starts levitating up into heaven. Until you can't see him anymore in the clouds. And the disciples, the apostles, are sitting there slack-jawed like what they just happened. They, they've seen some miracles. <laughs> they've never seen somebody just float up into the sky into heaven. They're sitting there trying to figure this out. And while they're sitting there slack-jawed, they look over, and now there's two angels that God sends to explain what just happened. So if you look at, at verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye up gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you shall see him go into heaven. And so the angels tell him, the second coming is going to be much the same way. He's going to come back to the clouds the same way that you saw him ascend. So Jesus Christ goes back up to heaven. And what's he doing up in heaven for us right now? Let's finish up and look at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. It compares Christ to the Old Testament sacrifices. It's showing the Hebrews how Christ was the fulfillment of the law and everything they'd been looking for. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 20. Look at verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So the New Testament, the New Covenant versus the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, Jesus is the, the surety or the assurance of our New Covenant with God, our New Testament with God. Verse 23, And they truly were many priests, the Old Testament priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So in the Old Testament they had a high priest, he'd live and die, high priest live and die, high priest live and die. But the New Testament isn't founded on the old Levitical priesthood. The New Testament is founded on the priesthood of of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so, look at verse 24. But this man, Jesus Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. There's no need for any more priest other than Jesus. Verse 25. Wherefore he, Jesus is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So this is the ministry of intercession. Jesus is at the right hand of God, and Jesus is constantly there reminding a holy God that our sins are paid for. So you're saved, you're so happy to be saved, and then you do something foolish and you sin. The devil comes to you and says, boy, you sinned, you loser. You're probably not even going to go to heaven. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of our brethren. Or Satan might even go to God and say, do you see what he did down there? Do you see what he did? You can't let him into heaven. He's a sinner. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, excuse me, Father, I paid for his sin. So our salvation is secure, not based upon what we do. 
It's based upon the promises of God and the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at one last verse here, Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered in the holy places made with hands. He's, he's not in the, the, the earthly tabernacle, uh, which are figures of the true. What's, what's really fascinating is Hebrews reminds us that the earthly tabernacle uh, and the earthly temple where Moses got the, the plans for from God, those are based upon the actual heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly uh, temple in heaven. And the Bible here is saying Jesus doesn't go to the earthly tabernacle. Those were just figures of, of the true tabernacle. He says in verse 24, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. What are the next two words? For us. For us. That's the intercession ministry. What's Jesus doing right now? He's at the right hand of the Father as our representative, our intercessor, and our advocate. This is who Jesus is. This is why it matters. Now, you don't have to have these down word for word, but these five things, these five things are vital for every true believer to know so that we can explain who Jesus is. Here's what we believe about Jesus, the person work of Christ. Number one, Jesus Christ is the, the virgin-born, sinless Son of God. Number two, Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal God and redeem sinful men. Number three, Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice. Number four, Jesus Christ ensured our justification with his literal physical resurrection from the dead. And then lastly, number five, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the God where as our high priest, he alone fulfills the ministry of intercession. He's there for us. Amen. Isn't that good? Amen. Now I know most of you already believe in Jesus and what this should do is be like, wow, first of all, thank you, God. Amen. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for everything you've done for me. Secondly, it ought to make us want to tell other people. they got to know who Jesus is. I mean, they just, they just have to know. And then, of course, if you're here this morning, you're listening, you're not sure you're saved, today's the day to trust Jesus. Today's the day to put your faith in Jesus Christ, where you admit that you're a sinner, you admit you can't go to heaven without Christ, but you believe in your heart Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid for your sin, was buried, rose again, and you're willing to trust him as your Savior. That's what I did when I was 16. That's what every Christian who's ever lived has done. It's got to be a moment in time when you put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that we've heard today. I pray that you'd help each one of us.